Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get There's a lot going on in the world these days, uh, including questions about how the pandemic may be changing how we live and how we work uh, and a variety of things around that. Uh, tech companies here in California certainly were among the first to go fully remote uh, and work from home. And many have made it clear that they plan to keep that practice in place for quite a long time. Uh, and certainly some of them have even suggested that it may be a permanent move, that they would prefer to allow uh, employees to work from home forever if they so wish. For years, there have been discussions about how Silicon Valley or California as a whole may eventually lose its crown as the sort of innovation hub of the world. Uh, we even did an episode of this uh, about this on the podcast, uh, I think it was back in like 2015, that we were, we were sort of looking at why even in an age where working remotely seemed easier than ever, people still wanted to come and live and work in Silicon Valley. Um, but with the pandemic forcing so many people to really work remotely, uh, and certainly with the cost of housing already uh, being beyond levels that most people consider, uh, well, people already consider them insane, and I think they're even higher than, than insane, uh, as well as a few other issues. Some people are once again predicting that there will be a mass exodus from California and from the tech industry in particular. Uh, I am not yet convinced of that for a variety of reasons, but I think it is a topic worth discussing. Uh, and so I am pleased to have Kim Mike Cutler uh, on the podcast today as our guest to talk about it. Uh, if you somehow do not know uh, who she is, uh, she is a partner at Initialized Capital, uh, which is one of the best early stage venture capital firms around. Uh, and before that, she was a long-term tech journalist for TechCrunch, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, beyond being one of the smartest people I know on a variety of different topics and thoughtful about analyzing technology issues and trends, um, she's also deeply engaged in a variety of local California issues, uh, including some around housing. So, uh, Kim, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, uh, I guess first up, uh, what do you think? Do you think that the pandemic signals the end of Silicon Valley as a tech hub? You know, I when this whole thing started, I read not one, not two, but three books on pandemics. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that sounds like overkill. <laughs> it was a little bit of overkill. I read John Beery's book. I read Pale Rider. Um, I read, um, uh, I think it's called Epidemics in Society, which is more, it's less about, you know, this specific flu pandemic. But like in each of those, like in every single one of the cases described, cities bounced back. Um, and once it was safe to do so, cities bounced back um, mm. aggressively. Um, so from a, you know, if we were just talking about a pandemic, mm -hmm. um, I I wouldn't worry about it. I, you know, I, I obviously remote work adds a different element to it. But in general, I think people are human and humans hunger for social connection and collaboration. And I don't know, there's just a lot more that you can do, you know, when you're in the physical presence of a person, you know, as compared to, you know, connecting with them virtually. Um, 
but you know that's not the only thing that's affecting the state right now it you know i think that like more existential to <laughs> california is not the pandemic it's climate change um right. and climate change is really serious and smoke is really serious and you know if you're looking at a state where you know it's primary uh you know one of its um primary like attractive reasons for being here and and you know is the weather i mean like the weather mm -hmm. is like if you go back like way back into the history of, of silicon valley you know uh i think it, frederick terman was a grad student of vannevar bush who started like the um what is it national science foundation and like mm -hmm. he had um health issues and you know as a young man and then came out to stanford and you know it just made more sense for his health to be out in the sunshine and like he's the one who put stanford on the map and turned it from a you know and you know kind of a no-name regional school into a powerhouse of um scientific and technical research with national science funding in the 1950s it was like the weather that brought him here and kept him here and the weather you know has been an important part of you know, laying the seeds, so to speak, of, you know, what became a very, what has been a very vibrant ecosystem for the last 80 some odd years. Um, if that changes and, you know, you know, you're not, it, it's not nice year round and you have three months or many months or however many months of smoke, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I just, I, I, I don't, I, that, that, that to me seems, you know, that's not like a thing that goes away in 18 months. That's a thing right. that is, um, potentially irreversible so you know that that I, that to me is more significant than the pandemic the pandemic is something like you know we deal with it it passes um and then you know people return to cities and creative hubs and they return to san francisco and other other um you know bay area centers so yeah yeah and i think i think i agree with like i don't think it's the pandemic alone um, that would drive this kind of change for exactly the reasons that you said. But I do think that the, um, and we'll get to let's we'll get to the fires and the climate change issues in a second. But um, I do wonder if the remote work and sort of the the sort of uh, widespread embracing of remote work because of the pandemic leads to a, a kind of potentially different result here. I I, I still lean against it. And I, I still think that it, it feels unlikely to me for, for some of the reasons that you mentioned already, certainly like, I do think, you know, people do like to see each other in person. And you can like as much as you know, you can do certain things on zoom or, or whatever. Um, the, the, the fidelity is so much higher when you're actually in person together. Uh, that makes a, a huge difference. And I assume that that will come back and the value of that will still be there. Um, but I do wonder if it, it makes companies really start to rethink, like, you know, do we need to be based in San Francisco with the, you know, crazy high rents, um, you know, difficult to find uh, office space and just the cost of housing for the employees and the sort of demands that puts on it, whether or not it, it begins to create a, a rethinking of all that. Totally. Um, yeah, I think the answer is not going to be one size fits all for various companies. Mm -hmm. I mean, even I would say even prior to the pandemic, you know, in February, we actually, I think I want to say, you know, somewhere at the turn of the year, we, we surveyed our portfolio companies and 20% of the teams or people that responded basically said that they were already distributed. Hmm. Um, so, and, and that's also like a statistic we've seen in our portfolio generally, I would say the high point in terms of percentage of companies that were based in the Bay area was actually 2014. Hmm. 
And so like there, there was almost like this, like, you know, rise and then peak into the early mid 2010s. And then it started writing down in part because of those cost issues that you mentioned. Um, and it stopped making sense for certain teams to be uh, based here. But like, there's not, there's not going to be a rule of thumb or, um, or a hard and fast rule for what is right for every company. Um, I, I'm of the mind that if you are pre-product market fit and you don't know what you're building yet, who you're building it for, I, I think it's really beneficial to have folks in the same room at that point because um, you don't, you know, like it's harder to do the creative brainstorming work um, when you're far away from each other versus like when you're more of in a scaling mode where it's rinsing and repeating the same process over and over um, to get to higher, you know, targets, right? That's just a different process than, I don't know what we're going to build yet. Like, I I just think those are two, those are two different phases of a company's life and it may make sense for different things. And then obviously you have to factor in um, what's right for your different team members, right? So like, you know, maybe someone who's an individual contributor um, who isn't managing anyone and they have a lot of senior level of experience and the one thing that they're exceptional at, like maybe that makes a ton of sense for them to be remote. But if you have someone who needs a lot of face time and is managing mm-hmm. a, a huge team of people, um, then you might have to have a slightly different arrangement. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be in the office like, you know, five days a week, but like maybe, um, maybe it's more of an arrangement where, you know, they they fly back and forth a lot or something like that. So you have right. to take into account what a person's roles and responsibilities are and then also what um, stage your company is in um, to figure out the right, the right system that works for you. That, that actually does make me wonder, like, you know, what kind of startups will come out, you know, of of the pandemic right now where it is more difficult to have people brainstorming together in a room. Um, yeah. And I, I kind of wonder if that is a, a limiting factor. I mean, obviously, but I, um, it's, I, I don't I know. I mean, there, there are certain categories that have done exceptionally well. I think that like the performance of enterprise SaaS and public markets has obviously fueled a lot of energy mm-hmm. and, and early stage funding um, into the category at the pre-product or, you know, mm-hmm. around product market fit level. Obviously, there's been a huge surge of interest into ed tech as well. Um, That category has seen a lot of activity. Um, There's also a lot of people who are leaving um, jobs and using this as an excuse to do something totally new with their careers because it's a very obvious um, moment in time to make significant changes in your life. And then on the downside, um, you know, a lot of our, um, you know, we hear this from team members. We also hear this from founders in the portfolio, but if you, you know, women are disproportionately bearing the burden at home, mm-hmm. um, in terms of childcare and education. Um, and that obviously is having a, you know, a downside impact on, you know, people's capacity to, or female founders capacity to start new companies or scaling companies. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's an interesting point. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of crazy how much this impacts so many people in different ways. Um, you know, and I, I've, you know, somewhat joked about in the past, like the difference between like, you know, families with kids and, uh, and those without, um, or, you know, s- single individuals without kids or, or, you know, married 
couples um, without kids and their ability to weather the, the pandemic versus those with kids. And it's just a wholly different experience <laughs> in so many Yes. So and it's also ways. a totally different experience depending on what age your kids are. True. Right. Yes. So I have, I have a one-year-old and fundamentally it hasn't been that much a change from, you know, in certain ways it's been good for me because I, you know, essentially almost went straight from maternity leave back into quarantine. <laughs> right. And so it wasn't an abrupt change because I was already at home. Um, <laughs> whereas I have friends who have school-aged children and that seems much harder. Yes. I will yeah. say yes. <laughs> As someone with school-aged children, uh, <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it's intense, but you know, I mean, as with everything, like you learn to adapt and you make the best of it and it creates different challenges, but, but certainly part of it is just, you know, you have to sort of go into it, recognizing that not everything is going to be ideal. And in fact, plenty of things are going to be significantly less than ideal. And you just gotta, you know, be as flexible as you can, uh, recognizing often that, um, not just on the adult side, but, but you know, uh, at a certain age, kids are not known for their flexibility, no. <laughs> but they are. Have you they... changed? Have you changed since have what, what, if any of your opinions on homeschooling or ed tech have changed since the pandemic started? Uh, that's a good question. Um, let's see. I, I, I'm a much bigger believer in like free range parenting. <laughs> And, and giving children freedom to start figuring a lot of stuff out on their own, um, mm -hmm. just because you have to. And it is amazing how kids can adapt in that sense. Um, on the ed tech side of things, like, oh, man, there's so much more that could be done. Um, you know, there are sort of a lot of solutions that are all not great, um, you know, and, and you know, with it was interesting, like last spring, certainly, um, you know, the school sort of had to dive into all of this. Uh, and, and so very quickly, um, spin up different kinds of things and some, some of which worked much better than others. And now this fall, you know, they had a lot more time to prepare. So they are more organized and a little bit more thoughtful about it, but still the platforms are not great. Um, you know, one of my kids uses Google classroom. Um, and that is, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't, whoever designed it, I don't know that they ever went to school <laughs> because it does not seem conducive to anything. It, it is, it, it does not make sense. Uh, it does not work the way you think it should work. Um, it, it is, it is, it's a terrible product. Um, and I'm sure a lot of schools use it. And at least I've heard that a lot of schools use it. Uh, and then some of the, some of the other apps that, that my kids have used, you know, some work better than others, but they're sort of they're good for one thing, but not for another. So then you end up having like three or four different services. And there are a few like, like clever, which tries to tie together different services, but then that creates some other hassles and like the ability of like keeping track of all your work and all the different things and the different notifications and how do you communicate? It's kind of, it's kind of messy. Um, and yeah, overall, like, um, you know, I have a sample size of two, so, mm -hmm. so it's not, it's not a huge, uh, a huge number to look at, but, um, I can see how, like I'd say one of my kids, 
you know, has taken to distance learning without a problem. And the other one is still trying to figure it out and trying, and I think is definitely missing the, the interaction of being in a classroom with a teacher there all the time. And, and certainly the other students around. Um, and I think that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, but it is interesting and you can see how, like for people who do want to do homeschooling, that there are, there are tools that you can put together a pretty impressive thing and that kids will take them on and learn. But I still think that, you know, there, there is a lot to be said for traditional schooling as well. Um, and, um, you have brought out your, your historical reporting technique and switched this around on me. So, <laughs> 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 um, but, um, but let's I, just to get back a little bit on the, you know, I sort of skipped over the, the, the climate change stuff and, and the fires. And obviously for those who don't know, and you know, uh, we were drenched in smoke for, for, for a good month there. Um, this year, which was seemed more intense than in the past. And obviously this has just gotten worse and worse over the last few years. We've had a few times where everything has been very smoky. Um, and it's certainly, you know, it's, I've been out, I've lived out here for 22 or 23 years now. Um, and this is, this was the first year that I really honestly did think about whether or not I would move. And I don't think I will because I still like it here, but, um, it did get me thinking about it for exactly kind of the reasons that you said, like, yeah. you know, if it's, if we're going to have to deal with this every year, um, and it's going to be longer or worse, um, that, that's, that is not a, a good environment. So, I mean, are you, what, what, I mean, what are you thinking about that? I mean, a couple different things. I mean, for one, um, I've looked at some of the work of Scott Stevens, who's mm -hmm. a professor at Berkeley and some of the other research on historical um, burning levels. And in terms of acreage, if you look at the historical sort of, you know, pre-colonial level of acres burned in California, um, it's definitely possible that millions of acres also burned in pre-contact mm. um, California. Um, it is a fire and landscape that is meant and designed to burn. Um, right. Many of our most iconic species, like the sequoia tree, um, are dependent on fire to reproduce. And so fire is a natural part of the ecosystem. Um, you know, in the 20th century, you know, we shifted gears and engaged in a, uh, you know, a regime of widespread fire suppression, mm -hmm. which in concert with climate change has created an enormous fuel load um both you know an enormous fuel load in terms of not a lot of stuff has burned over the last hundred years um there's also been like insect infestations that have killed off lots of trees and then also mm -hmm. drought has stressed trees as well and then on top of that um you're seeing um the shoulder seasons of rain kind of disappear off um and there's also like a blob of really warm water, I guess, off the north of <laughs> north coast of Hawaii that is fueling, you know, certain, um, you know, maybe, you know, interacting with a heat dome that sits on top of us that then, you know, occasionally dissipates and brings offshore winds through the state. Um, and, um, you know, we have this season every fall, um, if, you know, where we have these winds called the Santa Ana winds in Southern California and the Diablo winds in Northern California that come through and these are dry hot winds they're like mm -hmm. 
imagine if the state someone like blew a giant hot air dryer on it right <laughs> and like you had a giant hot air dryer sending like 45 mile per hour gusts through this extremely dry parched um you know either the the dry forests of northern california or the chaparral in southern california and you know and under those conditions which are a handful of days a year um you know any any kind of ignition that starts is incredibly hard if, if not impossible to control under 45 mile per hour wind gusts plus you know um you know like very dry air and so like right. that's how fires get out of control and um you know we're we are in peak diablo wind season uh this week you know there are a couple minor events scheduled for the middle of this week and there i just checked our weather model for sunday into monday and um i've been watching the sunday to monday event on different um model updates and hmm. right now the current forecast is is holy shit bad <laughs> um, so, that's the that's the official term <laughs> i don't know i mean i looked at it yesterday and it looked i was like oh maybe it's not going to be that bad because i looked at the model run this morning and i was like oh well maybe it won't be that bad and then i just looked at it again like while we were talking and i was like holy oh <laughs> jesus christ um wow yeah and so like you're you know like what sunday's event looks like if that model holds is like incredibly widespread um you know 40 50 60 mile per hour oh, gusts wow. not just in the um the you know the napa um clear lake sonoma whatever area mm -hmm. but it looks like it is spreading down the current run shows it spreading down through the inner bay area which is very concerning and so yeah if you have if you have an ignition basically um the best that fire fighting forces can do is to just get people out of the way um it's just these things can grow really fast really quickly um and so you just have to get people out of the way um and then you know it, you try to protect the structures that you can protect but like you know this raises longer term questions of um you know where should people be living right should we be you know historically like in pre you know indigenous um you know indigenous communities and indigenous tribes in california engaged in cultural burning and so they would burn intentionally mm -hmm. burn um you know forests during the off season um in order to prevent fires from burning more hot during the on season and obviously we abandoned that knowledge and so right. it might be worth bringing that back but if we bring that back like that's a hard thing to sell to the electorate at large because it, you know, it doesn't mean smoke goes away. It means there might be more smoke more year round, but maybe it's less intense smoke. Um, right. And, and plus so, even, even just starting that back up with, with, you know, so much stuff to burn at the beginning yeah. could be pretty, pretty difficult to, to get back to it at a, at a level that's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a very hard thing for elected officials to sell and elected policymakers to explain to constituents, which is like, you might have to get used to more smoke more. I mean, you have, you might have to get used to a modest amount of smoke more year round to prevent these giant conflagrations. And then also this other question of like, um, where should people live? And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the thing that's frustrating about California land use policy is like, 
we don't encourage a lot of infill in places that are already defensible, you know, that are right. not going to burn because they're already in the middle of a city and you see there's nothing, there's not fuel, there's not like wild forest land there. Um, and, and because we don't allow that, there's a lot of pressure to allow development in what's called the wildland urban interface, which is the WUI. And so 15% of California households are in the WUI. Um, and so when you have this kind of sparse development that is intertwined with brush, um, electrical lines and all kinds of stuff, um, it's very, you know, the, the houses become themselves, you know, along with, you know, the vegetation, the fuel load for the fires. Um, and, but you know, that's a very hard conversation for an elected official to have, which is like, maybe you shouldn't like, should you live here? Should people live here? at right. all i don't really know because you know when a fire happens there's huge pressure from the constituents to be like they want to rebuild as fast as possible because their house is their asset or their life savings or or maybe they're renters and you know they in in certain cases like particularly for households that are in the wooey they might be there because it's more affordable mm -hmm. um so it, it's, yeah. it's a really hard conversation to have a lot of you know if you talk to folks who do um forest policy or fire policy, um, or, or, you know, like they, they know they, you know, privately, they know the choices are hard, but like in terms of what they can say or what they say to constituents, it's not clear what constituents will accept yet. Right. Yeah. And, and then you combine that with the fact that just like, you know, housing prices in general, certainly through the Bay area are, are insane. Yeah. Um, you know, you have all sorts of questions around housing. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, and like, you know, there's not that there's not in terms of like, if you look at land and land that's available in the Bay area, that is fire safe. It, mm -hmm. I think it, it, it's a lot less than you would think it would be because if you start building out into the hills and stuff like that's, that's prime burnable area. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you're, you're, you may be convincing me to leave. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here for a while, I think, but, yeah, um, yeah. it, I, I do wonder, right? I, I mean, because, you know, as I said, I mean, I've been out here for over 20 years and, and it has been sort of like this wonderful place. And like, I, uh, you know, just sort of my own sort of mental bias, I guess, like, so I grew up in New York and, like I was, I've had this conversation a few times lately where it's like when you grow up in New York, um, the idea of leaving New York never really occurs to you. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, it's not something that people do. It's just, you know, you, you're a New Yorker and you stay there. Um, yeah. and I, and I ended up out here just for a job and it was kind of a surprise. I was like, oh yeah, okay. I'll go to California for a little bit. And then I get here and it's like, okay, I think I want to stay <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I mean, beyond it being nice and, and, and gorgeous and you know great weather and everything um you know you had this whole industry here that was so interesting and vibrant and and dynamic and exciting um and so i didn't i couldn't see any reason to to leave not just because it's nice um but because of because of the industry also so i do wonder like you know how all this does impact the industry as well and and whether or not it, it creates a, a different sort of dynamic for for the overall industry over time i mean it 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 i mean it definitely i mean if it continues i mean people i mean it's hard to predict it's really hard to predict what 
climate change is going to do to so many different cities across the United States. I'm not sure. Like every, you know, yeah. when you, when you think about moving, it's like move to where, right. Um, <laughs> you know, like Portland and Seattle also have huge fuel loads as well. Yep. Um, but I mean, in general, I would say like the general trend has been that, you know, Silicon Valley created the modern tech industry as we know it. And then for the last 20 years or so, it's really been dispersing itself globally, like with the emergence of funding, ecos emergence of funding ecosystems and other, uh, you know, abroad, mm -hmm. the rise of Los Angeles and New York um, and other cities as, as um, secondary tech hubs. Um, so it's just been spreading and I think it will become, you know, more distributed over time, but, you know, it's a huge pie to grow. So, you know, there's a lot of pie still here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I, I think that's probably true. And I, I still, you know, I don't even remember what we said on the podcast five years ago when we, when we talked about, it, but it's just like the fact that so many people are just in that vicinity and, and honestly, like the ability to just have like chance encounters and conversations that you wouldn't have in other places that, that spark an idea or an interest or, or, um, you know, just, just get people thinking from a different perspective that is useful is so powerful. But, you know, again, it's like, you know, are there ways that that will happen more in a remote fashion over time also makes Yeah. Makes I don't know. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of tools that have emerged to foster spontaneous conversations and interactions throughout the pandemic, but I still find myself absolutely hungering for oh yeah in-person conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. I, I want that so badly. And so I think that's also indicative of, you know, um, you know, how much people and are, people are going to just want to congregate in a physical yeah. environment, like a city, um, when this is all over. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's definitely true. There's just, there's no replicating it. Um, you know, the actual in-person conversation is just not the same, uh, as, as, as virtual. Um, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess the, the thing that, you know, I've been wondering about also just in general, and I don't know if it's tied to this exactly. It's like, like the downfall of D Detroit, right? I mean, that's like the example that is probably the, the easiest one to go th to, like, you know, that was sort of the hub of the automobile industry, which, you know, out of which a ton of innovation did happen. Um, and then it, you know, it really collapsed in, in a pretty spectacular way when you think about it. Um, and there's always this, this part of me that wonders like what kinds of things would create a sort of Detroit situation for Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, it's climate, climate change. Yeah. Climate change is it. Like if it becomes unbreathable here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean if it, yeah, if it becomes unbreathable here for like a significant part of the year, yeah, that, that, that it's definitely possible. Yeah. Um, other than that, I don't know. I mean, I don't think a pandemic would do it. I don't think. You know, I think Detroit is a very complicated story. It's hard sure. to, if you, there's a great book on it called The Urban, Origins of the Urban Crisis by Thomas Sugru. Mm -hmm. I don't actually know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, unfortunately, but like um, a huge part of that story is uh, is race um, and racial mm -hmm. tensions within the city and the way that, um, you know, white American households with more resources and capital abandoned inner right. cities in the United States in the mid 20th century. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's hard to ignore that component on top of all of the other questions around, um, 
trade and yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it yeah. I mean, it, it, as with many of these things, right, there's like so many different variables at play. It's, it's never one thing. Um, and it's never is, I mean, it's never even like five things, right? It's the interplay of a whole bunch of different factors leading to, to, um, to, to different things and, and no, you know, no modern example would be the same as any historical one because there's always different different things at play also um but it's just you know the part of my thinking on detroit is is just this recognition that you could have a place that is such considered such a you know a hub of of industry um that that really collapses in a pretty pretty spectacular fashion and not to count that out and say that's you know because i think you know probably my initial feelings was that that's impossible, right? Silicon Valley is, is so big and so, you know, um, you know, such a, a center of all of this stuff that how could it, how could it fall away? But, you know, history <laughs> says all of those big, big things fall away at some point. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting one. And so a, a related topic that, that we were discussing before the podcast too, is that like, we're at a time now where it, it feels like, um, governments in general are sort of attacking the tech industry in some sense mm -hmm. or another, depending on how you look at it, um, or at least trying to change the tech industry and the internet industry in, in certain ways, whether it's antitrust or, or section 230, uh, which is we talk about often enough. Um, and I also do wonder a little bit how that impacts Silicon Valley also. Um, and whether or not if, you know, for the longest time, you know, the industry was sort of considered untouchable and everyone even talked about, you know, it's the engine of growth in, in America and it's where all the innovation is coming from. And, you know, just a few years ago, I was just looking back at some Ted Cruz quotes uh, from 2014, 2015, and he was talking about the, you know, it, it being the, the engine of innovation and, and, you know, government has to not touch it and not mess it up. Um, whereas now he's one of the leading voices trying to, to, um, you know, break up companies and change the fundamentals of how the internet works. Um, and I, and I wonder what kind of impact that has as well in terms of, you know, whether or not Silicon Valley, um, you know, if, if, if we get bogged down in a bunch of antitrust fights or fights about section 230, um, if that really allows innovation to, to spring up more elsewhere. And, and in that case, I will ge would generally mean like other countries rather than the U S. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the most, I mean, in terms of assisting other countries to the detriment of the United States, I don't think antitrust or section 230 is really the most important piece of that question. Mm -hmm. It's immigration. And so we know when yep. you cut immigration to near zero, and you cut talent and you know this yes. is definitely not saying that Amer americans absolutely like this isn't like a immigrants are better doing this it, that's not that argument it's just sort of like when you have really talented people regardless of who they are all in the same place exchanging ideas and interacting in this creative process um it's better for everyone right um when you shut that down um you know that talent is going to go elsewhere whether that you know is they stay in their stay in you know the country that they were born in or they go to another like immigrant friendly country like canada or um you know there are lots of smaller european countries that um you know try to make them that have tried to have very pro immigration pro entrepreneurship uh, policies i mean th that talent's going to go elsewhere and i think that's the most important key ingredient to um 
the ecosystem here. I, I, I guess I worry less about antitrust in the sense that like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if big companies have to spend more time on this and more energy and more resources, I think that creates openings for smaller growth stage companies to take advantage of that. And many of those companies will be here. Um, yeah. And then obviously section 230 is more multifaceted. Um, you know, if, if there are, if, 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 um, liability for providers and is increased, you know, that's, that's complicated in the sense that like smaller companies and mid-sized companies probably can't handle those compliance costs. Um, in the same way that big companies can. So I, I, yeah, but immigration is by far the most important. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think, I, I think you're right. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no. So I, I was curious, like if you, when you looked at the Google's, you, you said you skimmed the, um, the, uh, the filing today. I mean, you, and it sounded like you thought it was weaker than you had thought it would be. Yeah, and and so just for, for people listening, depending on when you're listening to this, we're recording this on the day that the the DOJ's antitrust lawsuit came out against Google, and so it just came out a couple hours ago, and I've only um, skimmed it. Um, and yeah, I mean, so the, on the background there, there's like you know there had been a talk for a while that the DOJ was investigating and that they were going to do something sooner or later, and then about a month or two ago. I think it was the New York Times had a report basically saying that that the the antitrust litigators at the Justice Department, for the most part, w- really wanted they they were saying they needed more time to build a, a right. good case, and they were told by Attorney General Barr, um, "You don't have more time. Uh, we have to do this before the election." They had originally said it by the end of September. Um, and and so apparently a bunch of the the antitrust lawyers pulled off the case. They said they 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 wouldn't agree to sign on to it. But yeah, I guess I don't understand. Like, I just have a hard time seeing Trump's base be super excited about an antitrust suit against. Me. Like, I don't understand yeah, what this accomplishes for them I, politically. I, I I've seen a couple of people say that, and so I think it's I think it's as simple as. Um, th- this is another culture war that that sort of the Trump world has set up that big tech, uh, as they call it, is against them, um, and they need they need culture war- wars like that's like that is the entire thing that the the Trump world lives on is is different culture wars, uh, and so one of them is that big tech is against um, you know against them. And so this is a way of showing that they're doing something to win this particular culture war. And mm-hmm. so there was talk, you know, also a couple of months ago that, you know, the White House had told, um, you know, Trump supporting uh, folks in Congress in both the House and the Senate, like, you know, spend the rest of the session putting out anti-tech bills just so we get people thinking that we're doing something. And so... Mm-hmm. I don't think it matters to them whether or not the case is strong or weak. And again, like from what I've what I read this morning, it's it's pretty weak case. Uh, they just need the headline. Um, and I've seen it like I don't know, like I was just skimming through Twitter a little bit, too. And you saw like the Trump world was just going nuts because, you know, there have been you know, a bunch of uh, Republican politicians 
on Twitter and wherever have been saying like, oh, you know, they're so unfair to us. They're, they're, it's such a problem. And every time if you go in and I do this all too often and it's, it's always frustrating, um, you have all of these Trump supporters going, do something about it. Why aren't you doing anything about it? Stop talking, do something, you take them down, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. And now they can say, look, we are, even if it won't in, in, in the long run. Um, just by saying we filed this, you know, uh, even like because and, and, and they'll take it and run with it, you know, even in the sense that like, you know, earlier this year, uh, you know, Trump released the the um, executive order on 230, which is, you know, creating this sort of waste of time and mess for people. And people think that just issuing that executive order by itself was going to like end uh, Twitter content moderation, which is not how it works at all. But they just see something that says we've done something as as evidence that they've accomplished something. Um, mm -hmm. And so my read on it is like, they just needed the headline that, that they've done it. And that then they can say like, look, we're taking on big tech. Okay. And so what's the pathway of this case from now? Like, what are the next milestones that we would look for from the antitrust suit? Uh, so it'll it'll go to court, right? So basically, they filed it, uh, and um, you know, there'll be Google will have to respond, and there'll be a lot of back and forth, and the case will be delayed over and over again. Everyone will file for extensions, uh, and nothing of significance will happen for many many months, um, and. Honestly, it may depend very heavily on what happens in terms of you know the November election and who will be in charge next year. Not that not that either side has any, uh, you know, both both sides have you know strong feelings on antitrust about big tech, um, but I would assume that a, a Biden administration and whoever takes over as Attorney General might have a different sense on which things to work on, might also recognize how weak this particular case is. Um, and in that case may seek to try and settle it. I mean, you had the same sort of thing with the Microsoft antitrust case, um, you know, which was brought under the Clinton administration. And then they, they actually won pretty significantly uh, in court. But again, after many, many years uh, and, and a huge, amount of effort and focus by Microsoft. And then when the Bush administration came in, they just very quickly reached a settlement that basically, even though the government won the case, um, the settlement effectively walked that back. Um, what is the alter Is there an alternate history of what would have happened if Gore had won? <laughs> like, if you could imagine like one or two <laughs> things that would be different, like in terms of the antitrust outcome and its impact shadow yeah. effect on the industry? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. And, and I'm trying to remember what the original remedies were in the Microsoft, because they were going to break it up and it was going to be broken up into different companies, but I don't remember exactly what the split was. Um, I think, I think they maybe wanted to, to slice off the, the like apps business from the operating system. So like office and, and windows would have been separated into two separate companies. I don't hold me to that because it's been 20 years. Um, I know that was discussed. I don't remember if that was the actual final thing. And it's been a while since I read over that case though. I, I did follow it at the time. Um, but I think that they, they had a remedy in place to, to, 
um, divide the company and the settlement took that back and just had, to, you know, sort of a few uh, concessions that, that Microsoft made about how they would act. Um, and, you know, it is kind of interesting when you think about it, like, what would that have done? Like, not much, honestly, right? Mm -hmm. Because that was the old paradigm, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and everything going forward was the internet. And even though like Internet Explorer uh, and, and Microsoft attempting to sort of, you know, shove its way into that market was, uh, you know, a part of the antitrust case, um, you know, I don't know that splitting that company up would have made much of a difference on the overall trajectory of anyone. Mm -hmm. Um but that's a really good question. I, I should go back and look at what were the actual remedies that the court had put in place originally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because... I'm, I'm, yeah. I just sort of think like, would Gore have settled? I don't think so. What, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they certainly wouldn't have settled the way they, that this case settled. Um, yeah. You know, there may have been a settlement eventually, but I think, you know, I assume that Gore would have kept the case going and they had a strong victory in the courts. Um before that. And I don't even remember exactly what stage of, of appealing that it was at, but I do know that, you know, once Bush came in and, and that they worked out a settlement that basically, you know, you know, kept Microsoft together. That was the main thing um, and didn't break them up. But again, like, you know, and this is one of the interesting things that, you know, every there's, you know, again, on like both sides of the aisle now, there's like strong interest in antitrust, though for very different reasons. Um, and I'm still not, like I, I'm in this weird position too, where it's like, like I'm certainly concerned about you have these very, very big companies um, and you worry about like, what does that mean for innovation and startups and, and the ability of all these other companies to come to the place in, into, into the space and, and continue the sort of important dynamic nature of Silicon Valley. Um, but I, I still like, I'm not sure that the traditional antitrust remedies helps, <laughs> you know, like, breaking up these companies like how do you break them up like you know i could see like but you there, could break... are, there are a variety of remedies discussed in cicilline's report that were yeah. different we're not breaking up companies yeah uh and some of them are interesting like the transparency stuff um and the interoperability stuff like that's the stuff that's most interesting to me um mm -hmm where you're you're not focused on breaking up the companies which is the more traditional antitrust remedy or just like giant fines um which is like the the european antitrust remedy um but like you know how can we have a system where we recognize that there are network effects and you know you can't like break up facebook regionally <laughs> you know it's not like like um like at&t or something no um but you can create a more competitive world through interoperability or transparency. And those are the things that I'm, I'm somewhat encouraged by um, because I think those are important. But I think, again, a lot of the other approaches are more punitive than, you know, actually trying to build a, a competitive marketplace. Um, and, and I think that's what concerns me about the, the approach to antitrust right now. Um, is that I'm not sure it really accomplishes the goals. And even, like I even fear, um, like the way they're talking about interoperability um, and transparency, um, that those don't necessarily accomplish the goals so much either. And the way that those will eventually be written into whether it's law or 
you know, some sort of consent decree or, or, or settlement, um, that those will be designed and then enforced in a manner that, that just locks in the big companies as opposed to really encourages competition. Um, and we've seen that before. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I want there to be more competition. I'm just not sure how you, how you get there through these mechanisms that are, that are currently in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, again, like now I'm doing all the answering. So what, what, what's, what's, what's your take on it? Um, I, I mean, I, I think I'm still, I think my thinking on, I, I'm still learning and reading more. I'm still yeah. in much more of a formative state. I do think that like, you know, as I've said before, um, you know, the path that you pursue and the outcome that you want. Um, I mean, there's so many different outcomes that all these dis- different interests are um, positioning for, and the outcomes are not necessarily aligned with the methods to get them. So as you right. said before, antitrust is really not a solution to misinformation. Right. Um, and in fact, in certain contexts, it might worsen it um, because there are just going to be more actors to manage. Um, but is it still, you know, do I do I believe in the general premise that having really, really powerful, external, unaccountable actors is um, problematic for a democracy? Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, and there's a, and this is a, a much longer discussion it would go in a lot of different directions. But like, there's a part of me that that says, like, we should be looking at how we got to this point in the first place. Um, and and I think that there are a whole bunch of laws on the books that that we should probably revisit that that I think created this kind of situation. And that includes like current patent and copyright laws and, and things like the CFAA. Um, you know, and I, I've pointed this out. I don't know if I've discussed it with you in the past, but like I've pointed this out a bunch of times that we're like, um, you know, Facebook, uh, Got, won this CFAA case. That's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right? It's the the law against hacking in theory. Um, and there was a company called Power that that tried to make a, an interface for all your different social media. And part of it was that you would give Power your Facebook login. It would go into Facebook and suck out the information and present it to you. And we would do the same with Twitter and and a variety of other social media platforms. Um, and Facebook sued them saying that that violated the CFAA, like, uh, even though the users were giving their passwords willingly, they sort of said that that was an unauthorized hack. Um, and, and they won that case. And I still think like that right there, um, is the problem, <laughs> like mm-hmm. not, not the only one, but a, a big part of it, like you would have been able to build more systems that would allow you to get, you know, not be stuck in the the existing silos and you could build competition, um, you know, that way. And so there's a part of me that's just annoyed that everyone has, has focused on like the two levers to go after tech being antitrust and 230. And nobody has looked at like, well, why did, why did we get to the point where there isn't like necessarily like a, a strong competitor to Facebook in that, in that sort of space. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so that part is is frustrating to me and i wish that do you think there are other tools that are interesting i mean what tools are interesting beyond section 230 and antitrust um yeah i mean like i again like the well cfaa just like changing these other things um which are more like the the levers that i'm talking about are more designed to allow you know startups and other companies to come in and change the system from below right so you know patent laws you know the ability of these companies to use patent laws to block companies from from entering their space i think is a problem i think that you know the um the 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 google oracle case right now is this bizarre thing where you know we're waiting for the the supreme court just had hearings on it they they won't roll till you know next spring or summer um you know if that case goes oracle's way that is actually really bad for competition um Mm -hmm. because you know what what under the the way most people understood it right it allowed google to create a competing product to java um and so you want that to in order to have more competition whereas if oracle wins you know google can turn around and block competition with it and um and so like i have uh, all these thoughts about the these existing laws that are in the place in place that are that are blocking competition and allowing these these you know entities to become so large with no real way to to break them up effectively um and all of these different you know, regulatory approaches are ones that are just going to lock those companies in rather than enable the competition. hundred um, percent. And so, you know, I, and I don't know how to get that across to people <laughs> in a way that, that is convincing because, I mean, and part of it just comes, comes again, like a, a lot of the people talking about these things are, are doing it purely for punitive reasons, right? They're just like, they're mad about Facebook. They're mad about Google. And I, I can understand that. But then the focus is just like on how do we punish them? Um, and, you know, I would like people to understand, like the way you punish them is you let you let competitors come up and, and, and eat away at them. And as we've seen throughout history, like, you know, the, the startups can be more nimble and can attack them in ways that they can't really respond to or not respond well or fast enough. Um, but you got to let that happen. And, and so much of this is structured in a way that we're not getting that. Um, and, and in fact, you know, a lot of these approaches, like I, I, all my complaints with the privacy laws, so many of them are really just like, well, it's just compliance costs. And so it punishes Google and it punishes Facebook and sure they'll have to pay a lot, but you know, they can afford it and the startups can't. And it just becomes, you know, you're locking in these giant companies and yeah, they're more regulated. Um, I mean, I had this, I had this post, I can't remember how long ago it was, maybe two years ago um, or a year and a half or something. I don't know. Time has no meaning anymore. So I don't even know. But uh, um, where I said, like, do people want like a better Facebook or do they want a dead Facebook? Um, And, you know, my assumption is I would like a better Facebook uh, because I think Facebook has done a lot of not, not great things. Uh, and it would be mm-hmm. much better if they were better about how they handled data. And a lot of people came back and just said, no, we want it dead. Um, and people were mad at me for suggesting, like, you know, let's try and figure out a way to make a, a better Facebook and, and you know, or more competitors to Facebook. They just want it dead. So it's this this approach that is like, well, what can we do that will harm these companies rather than what can we do to make, make the overall ecosystem better so that, you know, this company doesn't have so much power on its own. 
but there there seems to be more appetite for just just attacking yeah i mean i mean I that's t traditionally how we see like you know i mean when you see yeah it's very reactive rather than thoughtful or strategic yeah. or systemic yeah yeah. Anyway, um, again, you got me talking quite a bit, <laughs> uh, but it, it is it is always fun to talk to you. Um, but I think we should wrap up the podcast because uh, cool. I don't know how much more people want to listen to to me rattling, rambling on. Um, but um, uh, th it's very interesting to to think about these things, which is why I always enjoy talking about whatever you and I will talk about on, on these different topics. And hopefully, uh, hopefully folks listening enjoyed it as well. Um, so thank you very much for, for taking thank the time. Thank you so much. And, thank uh, you. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back on again in the future. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll still be in California and we won't be under smoky skies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and thanks to everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.